So welcome again to this Zoominar on Partner Reward Metrics, Measurements and the Link with Profit Sharing. This is brought to you by the Professional Practices Alliance. We are a multidisciplinary alliance of independent firms who specialise in advising the professional services sector. I'm Zulon Begum, I'm a partner at CM Murray LLP and I specialising in, in advising professional firms on partnership law issues. I'm really pleased to have with us today an expert panel um, to share their experiences and expertise with you today. Um, firstly, we have Corinne Staves, who's a partner at Maurice Turner Gardner LLP. Corinne is a partnership and LLP law expert and a SRA regulation specialist. Um, and then we have Claire Watkins, who's a partner at Buzzacott LLP. Um, and Claire is a partnership accountant and advisor to professional firms. And we also have David Shufflebotham, Who's a, who's a director at Pep Up Consulting and is our partner remuneration specialist. We also have Robert Millard of Cambridge Strategy Limited and Robert is a law firm strategy and management consultant. And last but not least, we've got um, Sarah Chilton, who's my fellow partner at CM Murray LLP and Sarah specializes in partnership and employment law. And behind the scenes, we also have Daniela Brad, who's our marketing manager here at CM Murray. And Daniela is um, the technical wizard um, behind um, all the Zoom functions and without whom we, we wouldn't be able to hold this session at all. So thank you, Daniela. So as you may know, this is the second in a, in a three part series exploring the often quite fraught issue of how, how we should measure partner contribution. Some of you might have attended our first session last month, but if you didn't, or even if you did and you'd like a refresher, there is a podcast of that session on, our, on the CM Murray website, or if you drop me an email afterwards, I'd be very happy to send it to you as well. So just by way of reminder, the key takeaways from our first, first session included the following three key things. Um, firstly, we um, recognise the importance of measuring profitability and cash collection and not just assessing a partner's revenue generation or, or the hours recorded by him or his team. Um, I should add him or her as well to that. Uh, and secondly, not to take a one size fits all when it comes to um, measuring partner, partner contribution and setting KPIs, uh, and if appropriate to tailor partner KPIs to individual partners. And finally, the key takeaway was um, that we need to recognise non-financial contributions as a long-term investment in the firm's future. So drawing all of that um, together, this, in this session we'll drill, drill down into much more detail, particularly around partner metrics and KPIs uh, and measuring and how that links to remuneration. So we'd like to, as I said, start off uh, as an interactive session um, with a poll question thrown out to our audience. Um, it would be great to have your feedback and it should be appearing on your screen shortly. And uh, essentially the, there are six questions on the screen and they are targeted at gauging your responses as to how well evidencing your firm are some key areas of contribution. So we'll give you a couple of minutes to um, answer those questions. But in the meantime, We'll also kick off with a very quick fire question to the panel while we wait for those poll results by asking you, uh, firstly, what area of partner contribution do you th think firms are currently quite weak at measuring? Um, and I'll throw that out first to Claire. 
Um, I would say uh, measuring profitability and efficiency is probably the weakest financial measures. Everybody seems to know how to measure, or they think they know how to measure billing, although I might come on to that a bit later, but profitability and efficiency seems to be um, where the data falls down. And Corinne? Thanks, Elon. Um, I would say um, measuring contribution to risk management and good risk management behaviours. Great. Sarah? I suppose uh, keeping with the theme of sort of sticking to our topics, I would say that um, firms don't tend to really place much focus and measurement on uh, things like diversity and inclusion initiatives and improving diversity and inclusion within the firms, um, which is a metric which has been shown um, to have significant impact on profitability, for example. So it's quite important, despite the fact that some people sort of forget about it. Yeah, yeah well, great to hear your thoughts on that a bit later on, Sarah. Thank you. Um, Robert? Well, if I were cynical, I'd say everything except uh, production, billable hours, but uh, so uh, all the, the non-billable uh, non value-added activities. But if I was to focus on one, I think it would be innovation, uh, the contribution to innovation per se, the contribution to translating innovation into scaled up uh, results and uh, the contribution to aligning innovation with strategy. That's probably quite a difficult one to measure, but we'll, we'll talk about it a bit later on in a bit more detail. Yeah. Um, and finally, David. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with Rob. I think everything uh, apart from uh, direct client service and uh, a recent poll actually suggested from a performance leader that 75% of performance measures that are out there and used by firms relate to just that one measure. So if you flipped it around the other way, you could say firms are really good at measuring uh, the direct client service, but don't spend much time measuring anything else. Right. Um, I should just mention that your poll answers will be completely anonymous, so please feel comfortable um, on that respect. Um, I think, Daniela, the, the answers might be ready now. Just looking through those, so um, the first one relating to direct client service, um, the overwhelming response seems to be average with 62%. Um, the second one on revenue generation, CRM and BD. Again, average, but also good, 34%, but average 48%. There's <coughs> a slightly, slightly better metric on the good side. The third one on people and talent. Everybody seems to like average here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so average is 48%, good 28%, poor 24%. Risk and ethics. So that one seems to have a significant um, poor response with 41%, average 38%, uh, good 28, 21%. Um, the fifth question on firm culture and leadership, uh, again, average is the overwhelming response with good at 55%, with good at 28%, poor at 17%. And technical excellence and knowledge, Again, average wins out uh, and good at 41% with good at 21% and poor at 30, 38%. So there, there seems like there are a lot of, lot of things that firms are fairly okay at measuring, um, some things that they're quite poor at measuring and a lot of things that they're not very good at measuring at all. So it seems like there's a lot of room, room for improvement there. Um, so we'll start off with a, uh, a question to David, please, on um, 
how do you think firms should go about choosing the appropriate metrics and how they measure them in the areas of contribution, Dave, that you discussed in our first session? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Ulam. Uh, I'm, I'm bringing up some slides now. I hope you can uh, see them. And um, this is really quite a, a whistle-stop tour through um, the areas that we covered last time and said, what do we mean by partner contribution? And it was pretty clear that there, there are some consistent areas that we look at. And I've listed them on the screen and you've already answered uh, some, some polling questions on them. But what we're concentrating on today is trying to create this solid evidence base of data and metrics for each area of contribution, how you might go uh, ahead and do that. And my first um, point really is, is a word of warning. Um, we seem to be in an increasingly target-oriented world and um, the, there's a really helpful law, um, often stated as Goodhart's law, and restated in a really nice formulation, which says, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. And I hope to illustrate why that is the case with partner evaluation. But to give you a little bit of a heads up, you know, if you've got a measure um, and you rely on a single measure, generally that tends to be what you get. And you also tend to get people really intent on gaming that measure. So trying to do anything they can to improve the look of how they're doing against that measure. And also more sort of insidious is the fact that when you rely just on a single measure, what your brain tends to do psychologically is it makes up the rest of the picture. So it doesn't go looking for any further information. It just makes up the, the picture according to your own views and biases. Uh, and you get what's called the horns and halo effect. So if you like somebody and you see a good bit of data about them, you tend to say, well, that, that's, a, that's fine. That reinforces my idea of them. Uh, that's what they like. Rather than thinking, well, that's one piece of data. What else is there? Mm. So it's, it's quite a dangerous um, thing to be overly reliant on single measures. And I think, well, I, I hope to illustrate where, where that's come in in the past with, with measurement in this area. Okay. So I'm going to take the areas in turn. Uh, I'm going to pick out some um, uh, specific aspects of them and, and give you some of the uh, ideas of areas of, of metrics and data. So direct client service, we've already covered this to an extent. In this area, it's very well developed. In fact, financial data is pretty reliable. I'd say about 85 to 90% you can get from the data here. Um, and because of that, you can use various bits of the data as a starting point benchmark. So you can actually start and say, well, the benchmark is here um, for, let's say, um, matter partner billings. Um, and then you can adjust from there and say, well, matter partner billings are good, but profitability is weak. So you might adjust the, the rating scale. Um, but but you've, got a, you've got a range of valid measures here. Coming to Goodhart's law, um, if you only look at revenue as an example of in this area, which, which firms have done uh, since I've been in the industry 25 years or so, then you'll get good measures around revenue. But if you're not concentrating on profitability as well, then guess what? People are not going to concentrate too much on that themselves. So it's a good example of Goodhart's law when saying, you know, revenue is a good measure, but you also need to make it a good measure. You also need to look at profitability and a range of, of other things as well. You know, if you're looking here, I'll just list some of the things I always use team billings, gross margin, uh, recorded hours is still a good measure, but it's got to be seen in the light of everything else, not taken on its own. Um, how resource sharing takes place, uh, and also in, th in this sort of area, you, 
if you can do matter reviews, that is that is fantastic. Okay, I'm going to press on. Revenue generation, CRM and BD. Now, this is an area where origination or client partner billings has been king uh, for years and years and years. And I think that's a flawed proxy for performance. Um, could you benchmark off it? Well, you could if you wanted to, but you'd have to recognize that you're really using a flawed proxy because in a modern professional services business, what you really want to see is partners sharing relationships and deepening them uh, in, in a real way, not just having work tossed to them by a partner who's on a matter uh, and giving them tax work or employment work, but real opening up of those opportunities. What I prefer to look at here or look at in conjunction with origination or client partner billings is the import and export factor. So how much work has a client as a partner exported to another area of the firm or other partners? How much have they received from other partners? Because that starts to give you an idea of collaboration. So useful stuff there. Can you benchmark off it? I would advise against, but there is, there is useful data in your practice management system there. Um, and also I'd say be really uh, useful to look at trends uh, rather than just a one year uh, look. Um, the most sophisticated firms are starting to use data from their CRM system. It's often neglected. You know, people often have systems and just don't use them. Uh, they're not trusted in the same way as practice management systems are. Um, but I would say spend some time on building that data out. But you can also find this from, um, from just basic timekeeping records and narrative if you're prepared to go looking for it. So on the, on the data and metric side, there is stuff out there that is really usable. Okay, people and talent. Um, you're evaluating three things when you look at um, people and talent, recruitment, retention, and progression. And there are great measures out there for this. Time to hire stats. People don't like using this stuff. I don't know why partners often go a bit green in the face when uh, I start talking about this. Time to hire stats is how long you've had a vacancy open before you can fill it. That tells you what your reputation is like in the, in the market, but also how much effort you actually put into the recruitment. I think that's a really valid uh, metric, to be honest. Offer to acceptance ratio. Um, this is very telling uh, where you have partners who always get their offers accepted because what that tells you is that they come across and they sell the firm really, really well. And if they're getting knocked back all the time, it tells you the opposite. Then you come on to things like staff turnover, levels of utilization, team structures. Is it, does your stream teams look the right way? Expert input from the HR team on how, if you've uh, resolved issues on time, HR issues, have you got outstanding issues? And then on progression, things like your promotions record, including to partner. I don't think you can be really seen as, a, as an excellent people manager unless you've got people through to the highest levels within your business. Uh, and I think that's really important. Okay, moving swiftly on. Um, risk and ethics. Uh, Corinne's already mentioned this, but in terms of this area, your CULP is there to advise on, um, on risk and, and compliance issues. And, and I think their role should be to provide you with, with usable uh, data. I think, I think that's right, David. Um, and uh, thank you as a cult for recognising that. <laughs> um, also vindicated that the polls showed that the one area where people thought that poor was, the, was really shined through was um, 
risk and ethics. I think in the terms of the type of data uh, that, that we're looking at, what are we trying to achieve? Well, we don't want bad behaviours. Um, what do I mean by bad behaviours? Well, obviously, stealing, being dishonest, things like that, bad behaviours, um, they're fairly obvious, but there are subtler um, demonstrations of, of, of those worst type, type of, of bad behaviours. Um, in, in the legal sector, things like suggesting that a document might be might be dated a different date. Uh, that's that's a that's a killer thing for someone to say, and and some some people might feel that that's okay. Um, and, and trying to cover stuff up if there's been some kind of issue, even if the person's motivation is to support or protect the client's interests. The fact is, cover up um, is is not a great sign anyway, or to protect colleagues, say. Um, I think sort of moving away from the really bad behaviours, things like failing to spot issues, failing to report issues, um, or, or indeed just sort of thinking about the leadership side of things. If, if leaders are not demonstrating uh, good risk management behaviours themselves, perhaps being critical of processes, um, I'm thinking about in the context of COVID, which we're all facing at the moment, um, if, if we have our leaders who aren't um, being seen to adhere to or indeed enforce things like social distancing in office environments then that could be very damaging to the firm in, in the long term both um, in terms of the culture but also the, um, the, the financial risks uh, for example if, if somebody blew the whistle on a health and safety um, issue and that, that could end up costing the firm quite a lot of money. So we don't want bad behaviours, we do want good behaviours um, obviously good behaviours are the opposite of the bad behaviours which I've just described um, I don't think that means that everybody has to do everything right all of the time. Um, no one is perfect and that's recognised. Um, but if there are issues, engaging with the risk team, recognising issues, looking for solutions to, to issues, working with the client, taking responsibility, being accountable for the team if you, if you are a manager or a partner, those sorts of behaviours are all ones to be encouraged and show great leadership. Um, and on good leadership, um, I think it's really important that, that leaders do demonstrate those risk management behaviours because then the team can see that there is no them and us, that these risk management um, ideals are there to protect the firm, to protect the clients. Um, there's no them and us in that scenario. So just briefly, yeah. what, what data do we have to help us identify those behaviours? Um, as a CULP, I would say that the best tools for me are things like our complaints register. You'd expect everyone to have some complaints, but those that have none, are probably not reporting them. Those that have too many are probably doing too much wrong. Uh, breaches register, uh, same again. Uh, reports of disciplinary issues or grievances, that's another useful piece of evidence. Um, there's also anecdotal evidence as well, which shouldn't be overlooked, although that's harder to measure, of course. And, and thinking again about the financial side, um, credit notes. A credit note is, is a perfect example of the fact that the bill wasn't what the client was expecting, rightly or wrongly, but they weren't expecting it, which means that the likelihood is that either we didn't tell them how much it was going to cost or we um, gave them some kind of surprise um, because we exceeded what the cost was going to be and then we didn't manage it with them before issuing that, that invoice. So, so again, things like the number of credit notes that are issued could be, could be a really useful piece of data as well. I think, David, that's all I was going to mention on, on data in that context. Great. Uh, thanks, Corinne. And, and a couple of things that I'd give a mention to as well are, are, are is data like time worked on a file before, um, know your client and, and ABC um, uh, uh, processes have been through. Um, 
and again, as, as you said, you know, um, co uh, complaints, but also conflicts. So if you see a pattern of conflicts being resolved one particular way, um, you might look at a, a set of behavior going on there. But uh, there, uh, again, continuing theme, there is data out there. You need to want to go and look for it. Mm. Okay. Although in that latter example, David, of course, it, it could be that your um, team, your, your risk managers haven't, haven't got a good enough system as well for, to resolving things in terms of on the conflict side. So you yeah, have to correct. really look through it, don't you, to what's at its heart. You, you do, and that, that's, that's sort of what I mean. You, you want to look at patterns of, uh, of conflicts resolution. So if, if a partner or a group of partners are always getting their way on conflicts, then you might want to take a look at that and see why that's happening. Yeah. Um, so, okay, right, signposts, really important as well uh, in all of this, questions that you can ask on the basis of the data, because remember, you are gonna have to uh, apply your judgment on the basis of the data. If you're expecting the data to give you a magic answer, I'm sorry, you're looking in the wrong place. You have to apply your judgment based on the data. Right, speeding through, firm culture and leadership. People say, well, how can you measure this sort of stuff? And I say, well, measure simple things. Yeah, measure objectives met and set. So you can see whether people are actually putting their shoulder to the wheel in terms of looking at the initiatives that the firm is doing. Look at the roles they've done and done well, especially if they're taking on onerous roles or they're avoiding everything. You know, if somebody doesn't appear on it, doesn't have a role, especially in a smaller partnership, um, uh, that would be a red, rag, uh, a red flag to me here and maybe a red rag to the management. Um, business services input. Does the partner break or back firm processes and policies? This is a great example of, of expert leadership, uh, expert input needed. And it always amuses me that uh, in, in the law field, especially, you know, uh, once you're in court, expert evidence is critical. Uh, if it's about partner evaluation, it tends to get um, put on the back burner. So measure simple things, you know, social events, uh, for partner meetings, it tells you about a partner's willingness to engage with the business and its culture. And the last one, and I've got, I've got two bubbles for this one, because I think this is a real Cinderella area. And I think lies behind some of the stuff that, that, that Rob was talking about in terms of innovation. If you want to get up the, the, the value chain in terms of your practice, much of that goal depends on being good at harnessing the knowledge that you've got. It's about standardization of approaches. Critical if you want to use, and I've used the, I put it in brackets, AI, because it's a bit of a term of art, but machine learning, all those processes, contract builder, et cetera, appearing like one firm across jurisdictions or offices to your clients is critical if, if you want to have this one term, one team, collaborative and specialized approach uh, that many firms are reaching for, but they seem not to follow that through then into, um, into th this area of knowledge, uh, capital, if you like, and te technical excellence. Um, and, and there's a whole load, load of data around that that is available again, you know, the number of precedents used, uh, the standard documents used, contributions to knowledge sharing, uh, sessions run, knowledge sharing sessions run, updates on the latest cases and knowledge, and how uh, prepared partners are to share that. So in summary, there's loads of data out there. You just got to think about what you're trying to evaluate and, and go looking for it. Thank you, David. That's a really good um, primer uh, for, for this discussion. Thank you. 
Um, I'd like to draw on all of that by asking Robert, um, how can firms ensure that the metrics that they're, they're using and the data that they're collecting is aligned with their overall strategy as a firm? And I'm thinking of strategy in this context of um, you know, firms having to reassess what they're going to do, their business plans over in the next few months and years because of the current situation related to COVID and um, the economic recession that's brought on. Um, how do you think the, the metrics and the data might change as a result of that change in strategy as well? Thanks, Ulan. I'd like to answer by making three points and then a very specific illustration. Uh, the first point is that good businesses, successful businesses are, are, are usually really good at, at identifying what really matters. Uh, and, and that's as relevant to, to how they measure performance as to what they do in the business. Um, so traditionally, up until the, the global financial crisis of 2009, uh, at any rate, uh, production was king. I mean, success depended on being able to shovel billable hours out the door. And, and most firms did just perfectly well uh, measuring production and paying lip service to anything else. Uh, there's that uh, great story about Arthur Anderson, uh, the, the, the founder of Arthur Anderson, Arthur Anderson, who used to have a balanced scorecard system, which he called the four rocks in which the firm is founded. And uh, people used to joke about there being three pebbles on a rock uh, and a boulder, and, and the boulder was production. And it would have been very difficult, I think, 15 years ago or 20 years ago to argue with a law firm leader uh, about taking a uh, a, a view that was very far uh, away from, from, from production, um, if not uh, to the exclusion of everything else, then certainly first. So that's the first point. The second point is that, um, there's a and, and David's alluded to this, there's a difference between um, metrics that measure the overall success of the firm and metrics that one uses to assess individual performance. And the degree to, and this is focused, this webinar is focused more on the latter, but the degree to which the former is important brings us to the third point, which is that depends on how much you want to assess your partners on the overall, on, on their contribution to their overall firm as opposed to their individual contribution. So are you measuring team or firm-wide metrics as the primary focus, or is this an eat-what-you-kill system where you're interested mostly in the individuals? That brings me to a, a conversation I had just yesterday with, with, with the general counsel of a very, a, a very large, prominent uh, British business. You'd instantly recognize the name. And, and he was telling me of, a, of an experiment that they'd just been through, an initiative to look at taking a quite vast tranche of the, the legal services that, that they were sold every year and, and giving that to an alternative legal service provider, a, a business uh, a, a legal advisory business that was not a conventional law firm. I won't be more specific than that. And they went through quite a deep exploration and they came to the conclusion at the end that this, this other business, um, despite all the rhetoric and despite all the publicity around it, uh, was not really able to offer a value proposition that was radically different to a conventional law firm. And the reason for that was because the people in this other business were still charging by the hour and the, and, and, and the, the whole business model was premised on production of billable hours. And so irrespective of how they talked about packaging that in different ways, 
they eventually concluded to stick with the firms that they, they knew, uh, at least for now. So I think what that is saying is that things have become a lot more complex. Uh, to the degree that we need to move away in a very fundamental way uh, from, from production to something else, that something else isn't properly defined yet. We know that it's around client centricity. We know that it's, a, and I'm not just talking about uh, net promoter scores here. I'm talking about really getting to, to, to the understanding what clients need from the perspective of how that intersects with strategy. Uh, we know that it's about agility. We know that it's about innovation. And you mentioned how difficult it is to measure innovation. You're absolutely right. But as David said, it, it's some, you, you can sometimes find indirect metrics like contribution to, to, to uh, innovation initiatives that are, are taking place. And I think that many of these pressures existed um, pre-COVID. Uh, it's just that they are manifesting themselves now. And post-COVID, and amidst COVID, amidst COVID is, is probably even more pressing because we're in a rather sharp recession. So uh, these pressures are, 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 are perhaps becoming existential now. And um, all the, 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 the factors that David has just, just pointed out have become really important to, for firms to get their minds around what this means in practical terms and how they're going to measure that. Because it's not about a shortage of data, it's about how the data is applied. And just going back to your the first point in in the um, the quick fire question that we had about innovation, I I would think that innovation would be increasingly more important as a result of COVID. Now, um, would you agree with that? And how do you think firms could measure innovation? Yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, it goes back to what, what the, the anecdote I just related from, uh, from yesterday. I mean, the, the, this, this other service provider, which was claiming to be more agile and more innovative than law firms, was even they weren't able to, to deliver something radically different. So how do law firms do that? Uh, innovation is key to that, but you don't get innovation if you're saying, right, we must all be innovative, but what we're going to measure you on is production. Yeah. Yeah, Zunan, I'd echo that. Uh, and I think that the important point that Rob has made there about team or individual as well, if you start looking at those areas that are not production and, and really looking at those carefully, you will start to get more team-based measures come out. So I think that individual production has, has overwhelmed everything else to date. But the way through it is more, more nuanced and multifaceted, uh, eva real evaluation of those things. Great, thank you, David. Um, so moving on to some of the more, um, the people side of metrics as well, um, after exploring the, the, the kind of the broader issues and the issues around strategy. I, I'd like to, uh, the financial and people side of the metrics as well. Um, so in terms of the financial side, um, I'd like to ask Claire about, uh, obviously finances seem to be the obvious uh, you know, and the most available data that's always available um, when looking at how partners are performing um, against various financial metrics. But it's not always obvious that, that, that it's a good thing uh, and there can be issues around using certain data in certain ways. Um, Claire, can you um, kind of explain what those might be? Yes, I think first of all, it's important to understand that not every metric will apply to every role and even amongst a group of partners and even among a group of partners who are doing broadly the same type of work, not every metric will apply to them. So, for example, billable hours might not apply, might not apply at all to a managing partner or someone who has a really um, quite sizable management role. 
instead something like uh, measuring them against the successful integration of a new team or um, reduced staff turnover is quite an interesting one or an improvement in client satisfaction surveys is probably a better measure than something that's churned out of the financial system. Similarly, these days, um, more and more law firms have finance partners who are, you know, they can be chartered accountants and they can be equity partners. And I think it's important to recognise that that partner's role is significantly different from a law firm partner's role. Um, and so, and they obviously have influence over certain financial metrics, not least profitability and, and recognising revenue. So it might not be appropriate to measure them against those, those metrics. But you might instead want to use metrics like cash collection or improvement of internal processes, um, speed and accuracy of, of financial information coming available, team management, um, internal feedback, that kind of thing. I think, the, as others have said, it's important at the start to think what, what is the ideal partner contribution that you're looking to establish? Uh, it's easy to run a report, but is the data reliable? And you have to be really aware of pitfalls, some of which have already been mentioned. If you take the example of chargeable hours, you can usually generate a report that shows how many chargeable hours each partner um, had. But it doesn't give you the full picture. You can have, if you then measure that against recovery rates, for example, on individual client matters, you can have low chargeable hours leading to wonderfully high recovery rates. Or you can have high chargeable hours leading to wonderfully, well, terribly low uh, recovery rates. Um, but that, you know, you measure one against the other, the bill might be exactly the same. The, the profitability in terms of money profitability might be exactly the same. So the data that you're measuring that partner against is flawed. There is a firm, um, well, there are more, more than one firm who, who, who do this, but there is a firm I know where partners and staff are measured on recovery rates such that if they don't achieve the recovery rate on each matter that they determine at the start, then they have to go along and see the managing partner and explain why. So all this has done is it's had a, counter, a counterintuitive effect. It's just meant that they don't put the time on the clock. So what's the point of that? I mean, you need to be realistic about what time you're putting on the clock and really assess whether that's generating a proper recovery or not, not be frightened to. Uh, I think it's important to look at what non-chargeable hours are being spent on. We seem to concentrate a lot on the billable hours and the chargeable hours, but what's, what are non-chargeable hours being spent on? Um, that obviously, that, that quite often gives you a much better insight as to what the partner's doing when they're not sitting churning out the work. Uh, that, that sort of scenario extends to fees per partner, and I think uh, that's already been measured, uh, mentioned a bit earlier, but it's important to consider just, if you're just looking about billing, looking at billing, are the bills always paid? Are there credit notes, as, as Corinne mentioned, and one other um, aspect of credit notes, which the auditors and accountants in the audience will recognise, is that credit notes raised immediately after the period that you're looking at can be, um, can be a way to artificially increase the turnover when you know full well that actually you're just going to credit note it back again it may not be a, a dispute from a client it may just be in the worst cases it may just be that you're trying to influence your billings at the year end uh, in order to present them in a better light i don't think we see that terribly often but it does happen uh, it's important to look at how much chargeable time has been written off before that bill even gets raised in order to establish whether the bill is is worth using as a metric in the first place and I think also looking at where the work came from is important. Is it work internally generated, so referrals from your fellow partners, or is it from brand new external work? 
both you might regard as equally important, but, uh, but you might not. So it's important to see where that, where that work's coming from. There are some interesting financial metrics that you may not think contribute to non-financial um, measures, if you like. One of them is uh, collaboration. I always find this quite interesting. I like to look at how many of the firm's services a partner's client actually uses. So how many of the staff are involved? And does that partner cross-sell? So you have a client and you think, well, do they, could they make use of other services in the business? How many, how many partners are actually doing that with their clients and making sure that other partners in the business are able to access that client and sell them their services? That leads on to delegation, which does have a partly financial measure. Uh, it, is, it is quite easy to look up in most financial um, software that churns out uh, reports and data, how many other staff are involved in a piece of work. And that can help you, help you see whether a lot of partner time is being written off because they're not using the staff or their team as well as they could do, or whether they're using the team far too much and that partner is not as involved as, as he or she should be. Looking at the ratio of support staff to fee earners and fee earners to partners, I think is an interesting one as well. Um, I think that might tap into whether better use of technology is needed, for example. I mean, I, I certainly have a, a client where you have to get through three PAs before you even speak to the partner. And since COVID came along, uh, that partner I've spoken to on the phone and he said, you know, I've now realised I don't know what two out of those three, three PAs do. Well, I don't know what he uses them for particularly and why he needs three of them, but I, I just wonder whether there is better technology that could be needed in some circumstances. Uh, looking again at um, delegation and, and partner involvement um, is, is, is key, I think, and, and how much they make use of their wider team. I think another financial piece of financial data that can help is looking at the number of new client matters opened, comparing those fees from new matters against from existing matters because that helps you determine whether the partner is building new business externally, building brand new clients, bringing in brand new um, uh, you know, income. Uh, I think also looking at uh, staff stickability um, within partner sub teams, it, you know, it taps into the client, the staff turnover, but if you're able to look at your firm um, and, and create sub teams out of it and look at the staff that stick within those sub teams, I think that's quite interesting. Um. I'm just conscious of time. Um, there were, actually, there were one, two very quick points I'll make. Mm -hmm. uh, I think client satisfaction is, a, is an important one. Have a look at surveys and, and referrals. And uh, one of them that I really like is just seeing how many clients come to uh, events that you put on, although I realise that that's not appropriate for a partner who deals with international clients. They're hardly going to be travelling too much at the moment. Um, but I, I think it's just, don't just concentrate on, on the financial data, don't just concentrate on the billing and the chargeable hours, look at the behaviours that you're expecting to see and see whether the financial data will support some evidence so that you can assess that. Thanks Claire, obviously there's a whole range of different um, data sets that people can use and um, uh, use to extrapolate, extrapolate that and um, understand what, how a partner is contributing to the firm. So thank you, thank you for that. Um, I'd like to move on to Sarah to discuss some of the more, the people aspects of KPIs and metrics and data, uh, data collection. Um, obviously in a lot of firms out there have, have for many years have had um, targets and um, objectives around gender balance, for example, in their partnerships. Um, as well as their wider business, uh, following the Black Lives 
Black Lives Matter movement, there's been an increased focus on um, ethnic minority diversity as well. Um, Sarah, can you talk us through how firms can um, ensure that the metrics reflect their purposes and values when it comes to diversity inclusion, for example, and whether some metrics might indeed be inherently discriminatory and hold back firms from um, becoming more diverse businesses? Thanks, Ceylon. Um, yeah, so I think, first of all, firms need to think about what their values are and revisit those regularly. So it's not uh, okay to set your values, you know, year one when you set yourself up and then never go back to those values. And I think what we've seen over the last few months has really demonstrated that, demonstrated that actually um, the world changes and therefore values and priorities have to change as well. Um, and uh, I think I wouldn't say that anyone's really at the moment writing off diversity, but historically it hasn't been something that I think has been given that much prominence. Yet there is clear statistical data that demonstrates how important it is. Um, and so, for example, um, a report by, by McKinsey found that it's not just about gender diversity. In fact, the companies in the top quartile for ethnic and cultural diversity um, on executive teams were 33% more likely to have leading profitability. So there's a real um, profitability link with diversity, um, which I think has been discussed more and more over the last few months. Um, so I think in terms of what firms need to be thinking about, um, they need to think about kind of what their values are, and then they need to really think about, well, how, how do they get there and how do they achieve their diversity and inclusion goals and agenda? And then really think back and think, well, how, what do we need our partners to be doing to help us achieve that agenda? Um, so, you know, what will uh, an improved diversity agenda look like and what measures do we need to put in place to ask our partners to achieve? It's not just the partners, but, you know, in the context of partner contribution, we're just thinking about that. And holding senior leadership to account over diversity is also important, but I don't think it's something that's done enough in the professional services sector from what I witness um, and anecdotal evidence. Um, contrast that to some other sectors. So a couple of years ago, Sodexo were tying 10% of their executive bonuses to um, delivering on the diversity and inclusion agenda. So that's really putting it front and centre and, and making a clear financial link between uh, the bonus structure um, and in partnership, it would be kind of either profit share or progression up the lockstep or bonus pool and delivering on that agenda. Um, and as a result, of thinking about what kind of metrics you need to think about that will vary depending on the firm depending on uh, how you intend to deliver your dni agenda i think one thing i'd say be wary of is it's not just for the dni committee it's not just for the diversity inclusion partner it is for everybody it's a type of issue that cannot be tackled alone um, and you might want to think about um you know what metrics allow you to measure against that dni agenda so you know pay and promotion decisions is someone inherently discriminatory in the way that they approach those things is someone delivering on your positive action and recruitment uh, agenda? Um, is someone improving the diversity pipeline in the profession, um, which is obviously a, a bigger picture topic? Um, so I think there are metrics. It just requires a little bit more thought and consideration than financial metrics, which might be more easily available to you. Thank you, Sarah. It's really helpful. Um, so it's great to have all of your thoughts on what metrics are, what the data points should be um, and how we can interpret some of that data. Um, so it'd be great to link all of that together in um, thinking about how do the different partner remuneration models link with how you evaluate partners against those metrics and the data that you have. 
Um, Corinne, could we have your thoughts on that? Thank you. Of course. <laughs> now, I, I promised a two-minute uh, whistle-stop tour of profit uh, and remuneration systems in a partnership. Um, that's hilarious because firms can and do spend days and days, weeks and weeks talking about this. Here it goes. I've already used 16 seconds on this little introduction. So at one end, we've got locksteps. Locksteps, as you know, is a system where somebody starts at the bottom of the lockstep and each year that they stay with the firm, they get slightly improved profit sharing rights. It's like an escalator. You continue up the escalator. Nothing gets in your way in a pure lockstep. So on the one hand, your contribution is completely irrelevant because whether you have a fantastic year, whatever metric you use, or a terrible year, your profits are whatever your place on the lockstep dictates. Um, of course, other people would argue that contribution is absolutely vital in that context because you have to be confident that everybody in the escalator is contributing. Otherwise, it will lead to great division in the partnership because you will fear that there are passengers on that lockstep. At the opposite end of the spectrum is, a, is an eat what you kill model where your profit share is dictated by your individual performance and those are typically very heavily focused on financial metrics so whatever your billings are whatever your profitability is that links to the amount of money you got um, in theory uh, contribution is completely irrelevant in the wider sense because if you perform well you get a lot of money if you don't perform well you don't get a lot of money but it doesn't impact on the other partners in the same way um, but you, you can understand that that's incentivizing individual success ahead of people working for the collective good, the good of the firm. What we tend to find and what is most sensible is somewhere in between the two, some kind of hybrid model, which tries to take kind of the collective benefits of lockstep in terms of everybody pulling together with some of the individual aspects that allows people that are having a very, very strong um, time in terms of their performance and their contribution to really feel that they're being rewarded for that contribution and not feel that they are being punished by the um, lower contribution or efforts of others. Right, 2.15, Zulon. Will that do you? <laughs> Thank you, Corinne. Um, some very quick thoughts, Rob, on um, what you think the when, when evaluating reward, what strategic issues the firm should be thinking about. Um, and I'm thinking about both short, medium, long term strategic so strategy has been going through quite a change as well, like many other professions and, and uh, Professor Dick Whittington at the Said Business School uh, at Oxford has, has written a really good book on this called Opening Strategy. Uh, and th that's a progression over the last two decades or so. He tracks it all the way back to the 60s when strategy first emerged. But uh, what he writes about is the emergence of a strategy not being put together by the CEO and a small group in an ivory tower, not even that group consulting to a degree, but in a far more inclusive, transparent way. So involving as many people across the firm as possible, certainly all the partners, and sharing as much information as one can across the firm so that the, the, the input you get to the strategy is as sensible as possible. So if one accepts that new model, then uh, partners have a lot more responsibility to, to the, 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 uh, the future direction of the firm. They can't just say, well, the X code just determined the strategy. So I think the link needs to be threefold. Um, and it's like a Venn diagram, they're all interlinked. The first clearly financial, uh, especially in, 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 in a recession like now. I remember in the last recession, somebody said, well, cash is no longer king, it's now God. 
uh, we're back in that. Uh, so financial is important. The second one, several people have mentioned it, is behaviors. What behaviors do we want to reward? What behaviors do we expect partners to exhibit in the firm? And the third is the overall strategy for the firm uh, in this open strategy model can be disaggregated down into individual partner strategies, individual partner business plans, i.e. what bit are you going to do? And how do we measure the, the, the degree to which a partner has done what they said they were going to do in contributing to the firm's progress? I think that, that that's still an area that needs a lot of work, but it's crucial that we get that right uh, going forward if we are to, to be able to survive in this new VUCA world, as they call volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. Thanks. Get the word in. <laughs> That's a new one. Um, <clears throat> thanks, Robert. Um, Sarah, I was just going to ask you some of the kind of potential problems when, when evaluating reward and how, how to avoid those. Again, I'm just conscious of time, so a very quick answer would be appreciated. Uh, yeah, thanks, Elon. So I think um, there's a few things that have been mentioned over the course of this discussion where people have referred to things where I've immediately thought bias might creep in. So, you know, things around, for example, how people behave um, at events, how people participate, whether people are, uh, you know, um, meeting participation expectations and requirements, what they are like in meetings and all these things are subject to potential bias and that always gives a discrimination lawyer some uh, nervousness so i think one of the main potential issues is um that you end up actually introducing bias into the actual assessment of these things and i think that's why firms have historically stuck to things like financial data because it's very easy to avoid bias as soon as you start to introduce some of the other metrics it becomes much more difficult to ensure that you're not introducing bias and when i talk about bias i talk about conscious and unconscious so I think in terms of, well, how do you address that? I think actually making sure that the people who are making these decisions have got the adequate training on um, diversity and inclusion and unconscious bias so that so far as you can, you are trying to eliminate or at least reduce that um, potential adverse um, impact. I think the other thing I'd say is that's in this, the application of the criteria. There are other obvious discriminatory issues that arise in that context as well. But I think also thinking about the criteria itself. So, you know, um, are there inherently discriminatory um, criterion that you have selected? For example, if you use a metric which will mean that people who have been on a period of leave are always going to perform badly in the year that they return from the leave and then they will be assessed badly and then they will not be remunerated or rewarded uh, as, as if they had not been on that leave, that is likely to be indirectly discriminatory against people who are, for example, on a period of long-term sickness absence, if they've got disability, or people who have been on a period of maternity leave. Um, and, you know, touching on a, a, another point, people have spoken about um, use of technology. I, I mean, some people might have an impediment that impairs their ability to use technology. So you have to look at these things on both an individual and a collective level. So if one particular person has a disability that, for example, will prevent them adopting a certain um, way of working, then that needs to obviously be given some consideration. So. I mean, there's a, there's a whole host of potential pitfalls and, and ways that you can overcome it, which we don't have time to get into. Um, one final point I would say is just um, bear in mind positive action. So positive action is something that we'll hopefully explore in more detail in a subsequent session. But under the Equality Act, where there are underrepresented parties, it is possible to take positive action to 
increase the representation of those uh, people that share a protected characteristic. So, for example, if there are as an underrepresentation of ethnic minorities at partner level, things can be done to improve that representation. And I say that for two reasons. One, think about doing it. And two, think about measuring how well other people do it. Um, but yeah, as I say, there's not time to really get into that, but I just wanted to mention it. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Corin, lastly, on evaluating and rewarding partners, obviously there are, uh, as partnership advisors, we both experience um, fraught issues around improper processes and um, the biases that Sarah's just discovered, uh, discussed. Um, what are the key things firms should be bearing in mind when, when deciding um, partner reward issues? Thanks, Zulon. I mean, personally, as a, as a quick takeaway, I think that record keeping and good process are absolutely essential that all of this fantastic stuff isn't completely undermined. Um, we, we've often acted for firms where um, the, you know, the management team will come to us and say, well, it's time for X to leave. They've underperformed for several years now. We've given them a chance and, and it just hasn't come good. They're, 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 not, they're not right for the long term. And then you say fantastic okay well let's see the evidence you've got of this what about the performance reviews for the last three or four years um, what about the evidence of the conversations you've had the opportunities you've given this person to improve and none of it exists um either because it wasn't produced and records were kept or often most often uh, most commonly uh, because those conversations were never had there was a very human sentiment that they didn't want to kick, kick a person while they're down um and and so therefore when you come to these difficult decisions you don't have that evidence uh, to to support it um, and so obviously that undermines everything uh, and in this current environment with covid and a, and a massive global recession there's a real risk that either firms will need to evolve because their strategies need to evolve and you will have to assess whether the entire partner group is aligned with the future strategy if they're not you may have to say goodbye to some people or worse in a distress situation you may need to say goodbye to people because you need to get smaller because of that distress, again, you're going to need to make really hard decisions about who the right people are to keep on and therefore who the people are to say goodbye to. If you haven't got records, if you haven't good, got good process, that process of, of going through that exercise is gonna be much, much more difficult and, and potentially cause you quite serious issues. Thanks, um, Corinne. Which brings us nicely on to our final poll question before we wrap up. Um, uh, so it'd be interesting to hear from the audience as to whether your record keeping um, of partner evaluation and messages conveyed to individual partners stand up to would stand up to scrutiny if, if the decision were ever challenged. Um, great to have your response on that. And, and while we wait for those responses, um, I'm going to just ask a final last quick fire question to the to the panel um, as to what your key takeaway is from this session that, that you think the audience should be um, bearing in mind? Um, I'll go to Sarah first. So I, I would say, do your metrics that you're using um, hold the partners accountable for your vision values and kind of what you want your firm to look like and where you want the growth to be? Um, thanks, Sarah. Uh, and Robert? I would say, uh, so far as possible, adopt this new open way, which means moving towards measuring behaviours, it means measuring group metrics and, and focusing on individual metrics only when it's absolutely necessary. Great. Uh, thanks, Robert. Um, uh, David? Uh, thanks, Ulan. I'd say, yeah, use a range of uh, metrics where you're using metrics, triangulate them against each other, 
and beware of uh, Goodhart's law. And finally, Claire. I would say if you're going to use financial metrics, which I'm sure you will do, just make sure that you understand them before you start basing reward on them. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, is, is the result of the poll ready? Yeah, well, it seems like we've got a lot of work to do on record keeping and, and process. Um, so, uh, yeah, the one to take away for, for, for the audience here as to that area of improvement. Um, I did say we would take audience questions. We have one question so far on, in the chat, um, and that relates to risk and ethics. Um, when it comes to evaluating performance in the area of risk and ethics, good performance often manifests in the potential disasters that, that do not take place, i.e. quiet life. By only looking for directly measurable items, might we be missing a broader positive? I guess, Corinne, that's for you. Thanks very much. And it's a really good point because um, a quiet life is, is very often <laughs> a good sign in terms of risk management. Um, what I would say, though, is that no one is perfect and no one's team is perfect. So I think a very, very quiet life is probably something to be suspicious of. Um, what we probably like to see is a, a low level of, of kind of risk issues, things that are identified, managed properly, um, highlighted to the appropriate parts, parts of the firm, uh, those sorts of things, you know, so, so there might be a quiet life, but that's probably because somebody's picked up on it. If that partner has engaged with the risk team and said, well, I've spotted this issue, this is how I'm dealing with it, this is the solution, then, then the risk team knows that the partner's quiet life is because they're actively managing it, rather than by some sort of stroke of luck, or more likely because they just haven't spotted some massive issue that exists. So I think, I think it's absolutely right that, um, Potential disasters are, are often examples of poor risk management behaviours, but, but not all, always. Sometimes things just happen um, or, or indeed a partner could find themselves, you know, taking responsibility for something that happened in their team that they could not have possibly controlled, even with the best systems and processes. But, but sort of seeing the behaviours that are manifested in, in that circumstance can be very positive. I don't think you're necessarily going to get some measurable data out of those sorts of circumstances, but anecdotal data, qualitative data about how these things are being managed and getting a sense of the way in which they, those partners manage themselves is incredibly valuable data nonetheless. Thank you, Corinne. And I think we had a couple of questions um, ahead of the session, which we'll just address, address very quickly. David, I think, you, I think you kind of touched on individual versus firm targets. Um, there was a question around that. Yeah, just to reiterate what I said earlier, Zulan, I think if you use a range of data so that you, you look at team uh, performance and the individual performance, you get an idea of how the individuals fit within the team. If you start looking at those areas that are like people, risk and ethics, firm and culture, knowledge um, uh, contributions, you are actually looking at um, team oriented performance. So by moving, by, by having a more multifaceted view of performance, you actually do start incorporating team elements within it. Great. Uh, and we had another question as well around um, uh, assessing contribution in uh, professional firms where they're structured as companies rather than partnerships. Um, and if we may, we may, uh, we'd like to move that one to the next session, which is actually focused on different types of structures for professional firms and how that affects remuneration. Um, so our next session in this three-part series will be at 9.30 on the 9th of September. 
and that will be discussing the ramification of external investment on traditional partner reward structures. We really look forward to um, seeing you there, hopefully. Please do register. Um, the invitations have been were sent at the same time as the invitation for this event and, and will be coming out again. Um, and just a reminder that we will be sending out a podcast of this session. So if you missed anything or, or would like to hear it again, um, you should be able to do so. Uh, so lastly, I'd like to just thank my panel again um, for being such fantastic speakers and only making me three, four minutes over time, which is a record. I, I'm usually about eight or ten minutes over time. So thank you for that. Um, and also to thank the audience um, for listening in and we hope you found, found it useful and we look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. <laughs>